the image of the baby, the memory of an infant held in her arms, the image of herself playing, laughing, embracing, nursing, cleaning, and so forth, never vanishes. She always looks upon her child as upon a baby who needs her help and company and whom she has to protect and shield. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 238, Faith, Father, and Mother. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. On June 18th, 1775, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband about the Battle of Bunker Hill that had just occurred. Dearest friend, the day, perhaps the decisive day, is come on which the fate of America depends. My bursting heart must find vent at my pen. I have just heard that our dear friend, Dr. Warren, is no more, but fell gloriously fighting for his country, saying, better to die honorably in the field than ignominiously hang upon the gallows. Great is our loss. He has distinguished himself in every engagement by his courage and fortitude, by animating the soldiers and leading them on by his own example. A particular account of these dreadful but I hope glorious days will be transmitted you, no doubt, in the exactest manner. So she wrote, and then she concluded by alluding to Ecclesiastes. The race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but the God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Trust in him at all times. Ye people pour out your hearts before him. This letter has often been paired with one written around 70 years later. John Quincy Adams, Abigail's son, remembered being brought as a young boy to see the battle. He wrote to Joseph Sturge in 1846, quote, the year 1775 was the eighth year of my age. Among the first fruits of the war was the expulsion of my father's family from their peaceful abode in Boston to take refuge in his and my native town of Braintree. Boston became a walled and beleaguered town, garrisoned by British grenadiers with Thomas Gage, their commanding general, commissioned governor of the province. For the space of 12 months, my mother with her infant children dwelt, liable every hour of the day and of the night to be butchered in cold blood or taken and carried into Boston as hostages by any foraging or marauding detachment of men, like that actually sent forth on the 19th of April to capture John Hancock and Samuel Adams on their way to attend the Continental Congress at Philadelphia. My father was separated from his family on his way to attend the same Continental Congress, and there my mother, with her children, lived in unintermitted danger of being consumed with them all in a conflagration kindled by a torch in the same hands which on the 17th of June lighted the fires of Charleston. I saw with my own eyes those fires and heard Britannia's thunders in the battle of Bunker's Hill and witnessed the tears of my mother and mingled with them my own at the fall of Warren, a dear friend of my father and a beloved physician to me. He had been our family physician and surgeon and had saved my forefinger from amputation under a very bad fracture. Later in the letter, Adams reported that even though, quote, my mother was the daughter of a Christian clergyman and therefore bred in the faith of deliberate detestation of war, end quote, Nevertheless, she taught him to memorize a poem about patriotism, to recite every evening after that battle. And John Quincy concludes, quote, Of the impression made upon my heart by the sentiments inculcated in these beautiful effusions of patriotism and poetry, you may form an estimate by the fact that now, 71 years after they were thus taught me, I repeat them from memory without reference to the book. End quote. This letter illustrates how the bond to a parent the memory of a mother can stretch across the years, across decades, and also how profoundly the impression of parental pedagogy can stay with a child into adulthood. And it is parental instruction that is at the heart of our passage in Proverbs today. In chapter 3, Solomon makes mention of the advice that his father gave him. 
Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake it not, and it shall preserve thee, love it, and it shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. Exalt it, and it shall promote thee, it shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace it. It shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall it deliver to thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, so Solomon says he was taught by David. And this parallels what we are told prior to the death of David in the book of Kings. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth, be thou strong therefore, and show thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. This, then, is the parental advice mentioned at the beginning of the book of Proverbs. But the book concludes by mentioning another, and that is a message from a mother. Jewish tradition understands the opening of chapter 31 of Proverbs, which speaks of a king Lemuel and his mother, as referring to Solomon and his mother Bathsheba. What occurs in the beginning of that chapter is an admonishment, one that we who have studied the story of Solomon can well understand. As we saw in Kings, Solomon sought to create an empire that would draw individuals from around the world to Jerusalem, and, he hoped, to the God that dwelled in Jerusalem. But part of his plan seems to have been affecting diplomatic connections through marriage to many princesses from pagan peoples, and first and foremost, to the daughter of Pharaoh. And this, in the end, resulted in the introduction of idolatry into Jerusalem. Thus, chapter 31 of Proverbs, according to the medieval Jewish exegetes Rashi and Ibn Ezra, is an admonishment by Bathsheba to Solomon because of this marriage, which means that the biblical book that began by discussing the guidance of a father concludes with the guidance of a mother, a guidance that the exegetes read as criticism of the king following his marriage to a pagan princess. Proverbs chapter 31 reads, The words of King Lemuel, the message that his mother taught him, What, my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. This chapter, after warning against Solomon's marriage to a princess from a pagan people, then continues with Scripture's most famous celebration of a righteous woman, the Eshet Chayel, the woman of valor, wherein we are told, Isha Yirat Hashem Hititalal, a woman that fears God, she shall be praised. Thus, chapter 31 of Proverbs embodies a prescient warning from Solomon's mother that he be careful not to be led astray by his wives that came from pagan peoples. And the chapter further tells us that what should matter in marriage is not diplomacy and power, but rather the fact that one spouse fears God. Understanding the opening and closing of the book of Proverbs brings new meaning to another famous verse that appears in the book. Shema b'ni Musar avicha my son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. The actual Hebrew strikingly is, forsake not the Torah of thy mother. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik in his lectures on the family notes how fascinatingly Bathsheba speaks in Proverbs 31 to Solomon, 
to one who is at that moment the powerful monarch reigning over all Israel. She still calls him not the king, but my son, the son of my womb. He may be king, but he is still her child. Because no matter how old the child may be, Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, for a mother like Bathsheba, quote, the image of the baby, the memory of an infant held in her arms, the image of herself playing, laughing, embracing, nursing, cleaning, and so forth, never vanishes. She always looks upon her child as upon a baby who needs her help and company and whom she has to protect and shield, end quote. And here, of course, Bathsheba's protection, attempt at shielding, is spiritual and moral in nature. Bathsheba sees the king of all Israel as the baby she bore, and the love she has for him does not result in indulgence, but the opposite, in admonishment for marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, something that she senses could ultimately be a source of Solomon's undoing. She therefore admonishes Solomon to make fear of God the heart of his reign. One is reminded of the letter by Abigail Adams that we have mentioned in a previous episode that she wrote to John Quincy after he left with his father for France. Quote, Improve your understanding for acquiring useful knowledge and virtue, such as will render you an ornament to society, an honor to your country, and a blessing to your parents. Great learning and superior abilities, should you ever possess them, will be of little value and small estimation unless virtue, honor, truth, and integrity are added to them. Adhere to those religious sentiments and principles which were early instilled into your mind, and remember that you are accountable to your Maker for all your words and actions. End quote. In the end, Bathsheba's warning to Solomon was not fully heeded, but it made enough of an impact that Solomon would record it for posterity. And John Quincy surely remembered his mother's guidance. When she passed away, while he was Secretary of State, John Quincy wrote in his diary as follows quote, O God, may I die the death of the righteous and may my last end be like hers, end quote. John Quincy at that moment as Secretary of State was continuing a brilliant career. But I like to think that it was in part Abigail's letter and guidance to her young son that stuck with him when he, after losing the presidency, went to the House of Representatives and spent the rest of his life fighting against slavery. In his diary, John Quincy Adams describes a sermon that he heard while a congressman, quote, This morning I attended public worship in the hall of the House of Representatives. Mr. Cookman preached from Ecclesiastes 9-2. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. And Adams further wrote, Indeed, the race has not been during this session to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. The most important and the worst measures of the administration have been carried through the House by the most contemptible men in it. Mr. Cookman illustrated his text by many references to historical scriptural events. End quote. Adams then goes on to cite these examples, all from the Hebrew Bible, including the stories of David and Mordechai and Israel at the Exodus. All, he continued, were adduced as, quote, examples that the battle is not always to the strong, end quote. The battle is not always to the strong. This is the exact phrase that John Quincy Adams' mother quoted in her letter to her husband. I wonder whether it was the importance of this verse to his mother that made it resonate with him. And I am certain that when we read of Proverbs telling children to heed the guidance of parents, we know that we should seek to be remembered by our children as parents the way that John Quincy Adams remembered his. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together next week. Wishing you a very joyous Pesach. Signing off. <laughs>